from Trimble Construction, you're listening to the Connected Construction Show, where we connect you to the contractors, owners, designers, engineers, and construction professionals who are finding better ways to work. And now, here's your host, Matt Sprague. Hello and welcome to the Connected Construction Show, or welcome back to some of you. Uh, my name is Matt Sprague, and I am your host. Um, in I am joined today uh, by uh, my co-host, Marlies Muyakind, um, uh, who is a product manager for Trimble MEP. Uh, Marlies, you want to just uh, quickly tell us a little bit about yourself and introduce yourself to the, in, to, to the, uh, to the crowd? Yeah, I'm a product manager for uh, Trimble MEP. Um, I've been working for Trimble uh, for almost 18 years now. I'm based in the Netherlands. Um, I worked uh, for um, designing a product for MEP, and currently I'm uh, working uh, on an estimation product. Awesome. So we are both uh, equally excited to have our guest with us today, Alex Janowski, of, uh, the, the Chief Executive Officer uh, of Domain. Alex, welcome to the show. Yeah, happy to be here. Cool. So um, tell us, tell our audience uh, a little bit about yourself, uh, background, where you're from, um, you know, how you got into the industry and uh, how you ended up at Domain. Yeah. So um, from Cincinnati, Ohio, born and raised, and I got in the industry through uh, the co-op program at University of Cincinnati at KLH Engineers. So I signed on as a, as a co-op kind of like a paid intern uh, for anyone who's not familiar with that term during college. And um, over the years, I, I got hired on after college and started out in design. So I have a mechanical engineering background, started with HVAC and plumbing and fire protection design, uh, eventually got into project management. And then in 2016, KLH started a series of initiatives to digitize the practice. And we had some initiatives to get 100% into a BIM platform had uh, initiatives to create some custom software that would embed workflows into um, the day-to-day -day use of, uh, of every engineer at KLH. And then we also had an initial, another initiative to be able to push and pull data from building model to building model and to other external databases. And it was really during that push of those new initiatives within KLH that I got more interested in those initiatives. And I started transitioning away from project management and getting more and more involved into um, into those types of activities. And those initiatives were really the, the foundation for some of the um, offshoots that grew out of KLH over the years and uh, sort of set the table for um, ultimately launching a, a data consultancy coming off KLH called LevCon Analytics. Um, it led to, to working through some software deals and, and licensing some of that product. And so it really opened my eyes to a lot of new opportunities of just what a career could look like beyond that of a typical engineering just because of the unique things that were that were happening at KLH. And as it relates to how I connected to the domain, um, you know, what started as, as very much internal initiatives at KLH, right? It was, how do we provide better engineering? Uh, we quickly came to realize that for us to provide the best engineering deliverables we can, we needed to get input from those who were actually consuming those deliverables, right? It didn't really do much good if we had a bunch of great data that was just sitting on our servers. Uh, there was a ceiling to the impact that we could have onto a project or into the industry. And so what we started doing was we started engaging with 
the market and trying to find like-minded firms that were interested in trying to figure this thing out with us because we wanted to do better and beyond than you know, a book specification and a PDF floor plan because that was still what we were doing regardless of how data-driven we were within the silo of KLH. And so around 2018, we began to present quite a bit. We, we tried to go to conferences and um, we leveraged mutual contacts. And, um, you know, we started to find some of these other firms that thought the same way, that were innovative, that were willing to try something different. And that's where we eventually found the founding members of Domain in 2018. And um, this is probably a good time to introduce who they are as well. So D Domain, in addition to KLH, uh, was co-founded by Tweet Garrett, which is a mechanical contractor out of Wisconsin. Um, they've got their own facility that's, I, I would suggest, is, is beyond a prefab facility, more of like a manufacturing facility uh, of about 150,000 square feet where they are all working through kits and uh, assemblies and supporting modular construction. Uh, you've also got Rexmore Electric out of Sacramento, who's one of the larger electrical contractors in the country. You've got Construction Innovations, which is a manufacturing-driven uh, electrical firm, and they are doing assemblies and kits and supporting module deployments as well out of Sacramento. And they've got their own, you know, 300,000 square foot facility. Uh, and then you have DPMG, which is a business consultant. And so all of these different firms, we eventually got connected together in 2018 and committed under the mission of, of bringing joy to construction. You know, there was a lot of frustration with the day-to-day -day rigors of being out on the job site and the friction and the anxiety and the litigious nature of just what we were dealing with uh, on a project-to-project -project basis. And so uh, that started in 2018. And then in the years since, worked together on dozens of projects, just as KLH had hired software engineers, the other firms had started to hire uh, software engineers. And so we started creating really unique workflows, pushing data back and forth, having you know folks from the shop of construction innovations help you know, designers from KLH and educate them on how to uh, provide constructible designs. And, you know, we started creating with more software. We start we, we sprung up a, um, an IT system that connected all of the different firms. And really what we did is just, it was kind of like branded, just loose collaboration for four years. And uh, we called it a consortium. And then over about a year ago, we decided that we vetted it out enough we got close enough to understand that you know we trusted one another because uh, we built the relationship for years and we vetted it out on enough snippets of projects throughout the years that there was a there there and that we should stand domain up onto its own and then in the past year we established the organization um, it's now a contractable entity you know we went live over in the past year and we needed somebody to to run it. And so I found myself transitioning away from KLH and, and to run domain. And so kind of winding through the domain and my own sort of background there, but that's kind of how I came to, to where we are today. So when it comes to domain, like explain to me, like idiot proof, this, the, this answer for, for my benefit, like, you know, what are, um, so it's a consortium, but what, what are, what are you providing or what is the group providing to the industry? Yeah, uh, on the very, very, you know, rudimentary level. Well, I mean, first the, the name Thank domain, uh, D E M A I N, uh, the D E from design, M A manufacturing, I N installation, put together domain. It was kind of nice. We found out. I think in other languages, it, it implies to tomorrow or the future. Um, so it kind of had like a nice play on that as well. But it, 
the essence of it is you're bringing together design, manufacturing, installation into um, a single point um, for your project. And so Domain will provide just that. We'll provide engineering. We'll provide manufacturing of the assemblies and the kits and the modules. And then we'll also have means to uh, perform the installation as well. And so uh, that will be on a variety of projects, typically ones with off-site construction goals or that are looking to push integrated project delivery. And then the other half of it um, is uh, this effort that we do to productize deployment. So we'll work with a client and maybe they've got a large project that we can break into repeatable chunks or they've got um, a prototypical deployment that we can help them productize. And so uh, that's really the two main functions of, of domain of what it can be contracted out for today. So is it, so I'm going to play it back in how I understand it. And then you can be like, Matt, sure. no, you still don't get it. Or maybe I get it. Um, <laughs> so it, it becomes like a, um, a, a collaborative uh, one-stop shop. So when a project needs uh, prefabricated MEP elements, they can go to domain that has the, 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 the products or at least the resources to be able to deliver uh, on those across multiple entities. Yeah, I'm able to leverage the resources of, of the engineering from KLH, um, you know, that square foot, that facility square footage at Tweet Garrett and Construction Innovations, and then also their installation reach across the country. Um, and we kind of put it together, you know, the way that domain structure, we're able to um, create a unique environment to where these the contractors and shop and engineers can work together in a really unique way uh, where you typically aren't able to see them do that because they're prevented to from uh, by contracts and, and things like that in the open market. That makes sense. All right. I get it. Nice. So Marlies, I'll hand this over to you now. Yeah. So the main website talks about your constrictionism and products. Can you explain more what it is? Yeah. Uh, construction is a product we really use that just to describe that as, as the method of, um, of of delivering the built environment in a way that mimics the experience of purchasing a product as opposed to the experience of procuring construction. And what I mean by that is I'm, I'm sure each of you have gone online and tried to um, uh, buy an iPhone or a car or whatever it might be. And um, in that instance, you would go and sort of select your transmission that you want or you would select the color that you want or that you want a case with it, and you give certain features that you want for that for that product. Um, and in the bottom, then, you get an updated price, and you get a shipping timeline, um, but you've got this type of uh, faith in, in, like, that cost. Like, there's a, a sense of predictability with that cost, and there's a, um, a sense of confidence that you have that in one iPhone and the next iPhone or Samsung Galaxy or whatever the phone is, like you're going to have a consistency of quality from one deployment to the next. And so if you were to take that concept and help apply that to the construction industry, you know, what does that look like? You know, how can we take a data center or how can we take a microgrid or how can we take a healthcare facility and standardize the portions that we can standardize and then work with the owner to understand what options um, are important to them that they still need to have on an implementation by implementation basis, you know, and maybe it's um, they don't care about the behind the scenes stuff and we can standardize that, but maybe they want some flexibility on um, 
on the type of lighting or, or the capacity that's required because they don't know what they're going to be uses for a certain location. So that construction of the product is really just how do we make this much more of a, a product-based experience as opposed to procuring construction experience. So is the idea... Why is the market demanding? Oh, sorry. Sorry, Marlise. I, I, I wanted to pick, pick on this. No, you can go ahead. If, um, <laughs> is the idea like an event or maybe there is already like a catalog the, of products that 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 uh, that anybody can choose from on Domain's website and and be able to say, yep, that's what I want. And then obviously it needs to be either. Well, I guess there's a there's a there's a range of customization capabilities. Yeah, I mean, you know, some of these are turning out to be proprietary, you know, deployments to a certain owner. And um, what we're starting to find is that some of these if they're designed right, can be applicable to many scenarios and customized to each owner. Um, and that range of options that you have there, that's, that's really the game of like, you know, you want to make it as repeatable as possible and advising the client on the types of decisions that they may not understand the repercussions of, of saying like, well, I want to be able to choose between this and this. And it's like, well, why? And, and you, you do that not from a sense of like pushing back, but from a sense of understanding what their true needs are. And then from there, you can sort of advise, like, well, if you made this decision like this, then you can standardize this entire piece here. Um, and then you still get to change, you know, the facade, or you still get to change the front end of how this looks or how this operates. So one day, there's some sort of interface probably to the public market as, as products. Now, are those assemblies? Are those modules? Are those actual buildings? You know, that's like the type of game that we're playing right now of, like, what does that open market selection look like? Um, and how is it supporting? Because right now it's been mostly proprietary to uh, to our initial opportunities. So basically, you're offering building blocks, but they can still customize it to their needs. Yeah, I mean, usually they come to us with um, a deployment, and we help them understand what the building blocks would be, so that <laughs> it fits all of their their needs. That's like the the sort of the first the first step of this is is taking what's looks like a snowflake and then help them figure out what those little building blocks look like to, to build that snowflake in different ways, if they need it built in different ways. Okay. Why is the market depending on, on product-based approach? I think they're doing because there's that sense of, um, of envy for a predictability that you get with the product. You know, you, you know what it's going to cost, you know, when you've got, um, you know what's going to arrive. They got shipping times on there, um, and you know that consistency from from product to product. Like when you get uh, a phone from Apple, let's just say, and you know they're not going to call you after the order and tell you that their chip vendor had a coordination conflict with their uh, touchscreen vendor, and now because their two vendors had a conflict, they can't actually fit the phone in the way it's supposed to be. And so now that there's, there's a conflict, there's an issue, there's now a change order on your phone, and there's a delay in the schedule on the manufacturing of your phone. And, you know, even though you're not at fault, we're all just going to split the bill because that's cheaper than going through months and months of litigation. And that, <laughs> that, that, that won't happen when you buy a product. But that happens more than we'd probably like to admit in, in construction, right? And um, if you can get to the point where you're emulating that product experience, you can start getting to the point where you're, you know, imagine a world of zero change orders, being able to guarantee zero change orders on a product, being able to guarantee a timeline. And, and you know, that's 
that's a, a complete, you know, I, I said to our team sometimes when we're talking about different ways we're engaging our products, it's like, hey, what if we guaranteed zero change? Or, and, you know, people still just kind of shudder a little, like, oh, I don't like, let's hold on a second. Like, what do you mean guarantee zero change? Or, um, so I think that's why they want a product-based approach because there's things like that predictability, that consistency uh, that you get from manufacturing in the product world that people really yearn for in, in construction. Yeah, there's so there's so many. Th I love the I love the choice of word there and predictability in that it so many things can 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 basically spoke off of that right. So the pr predictability um, you know al allows for greater sustainability. Predictability you know is greater profitability. Um, you know, I could keep going off of the abilities and whatnot, but it's a, it's a good word that kind of centralizes on all of the benefits. Yeah. It's predictability for those that are participating in the construction as well. Right. You know, like there's stats out there that, you know, picking up, I think it's anywhere from 25 to 35% of construction material that goes to the job site ends up in the landfills. It's like, well, if you've got a predictability on your side, on the supplier as putting together the building as well, that's better for the environment, it's better for the earth, it's better for your company, it's better for the job site, it's better for all sorts of things um, on both sides of that equation. For the owners who are in, buying the buildings and are getting stuck with these expensive buildings that cost more than they originally bargained for, but then also for all the stakeholders actually designing and constructing the building. So um, before you talked, you mentioned Prior to Domain, you were at, um, was it Le Levcon Analytics? Did I have that right? Uh, I so Levcon Analytics was a um, subsidiary of KLH. So as we were figuring out the, the data side of things at KLH Engineers, we realized that there was a need for um, the way we call it at Levcon was, was treat data as a discipline. And the idea there was to help manage and be intentional with the use of data on a project from planning, design, construction, and operations. And what Levcon Analytics does is they consult and they also have a um, proprietary uh, web app that allows users to push and pull data from models from a web-based platform. So that way you don't have to be inside of a BIM platform to actually manage the data. Uh, you can audit the data, you can push and pull, you can do all sorts of different things for it to connect uh, what's happening in design to what the needs of facility management. And so Levcon Analytics might get involved into a project and at the very, very front end and say, hey, I know that this owner's facility management team is going to need to know the make, the model, the serial, warranty start date, warranty end date, you know, whatever else the rest of that specification is, and they'll help implement the capture of that data throughout the project. And so part of my um, initiatives I did at, at KLH prior to Domain was helping to found that data consultancy, Levcon Analytics, and uh, get that off of the ground. So, as a as a um, kind of a reason for that type of thing, so there there is this um, understanding that in the industry, it's it's challenging to connect uh, data and workflows from the design phase through I installation. So, what's the most challenging part of that? I think the most challenging part of connecting that data flows from, you know, design to installation and all the different phases isn't necessarily the, the technology side of it. I mean, sure, there's a, um, a need to iterate and improve the tech as we go along. But I've, I feel that there's almost a larger challenge in creating 
a structure or a system in which that tech can be used to move the data from one phase to another. You know, if you look at a typical uh, design bid build project and you've got an engineer or a design professional and they're creating the design, they're contracted probably through the architect to the owner, right? Yeah. That's where their risk is mitigated from. And their deliverables are defined by uh, the contract that, that they've got. And that contracts uh, is defined by, you know, AIA and all these other types of companies that sort of use them to mitigate risk. And so there's this incentive to want to withhold information and want to withhold data as a means to um, protect yourselves. You know, imagine how many projects do you see design, bid, build, where you've got the design professional saying, hey, I want to give you all, my, I want to give you a bill of material from the model. I want to give you all of the quantities from my model. Like that just does that. Yeah, they give them the drawings and then the contract says, contractor, you're responsible for counting every light fixture on here. Um, and then you've got to read 600 pages uh, in the specs to figure out how many valves are going to be on this schematic. Because the, the drawing I gave you is just schematic in nature only. I don't want to touch construction. So when you talk about like moving data from one phase to another, you really can't do it if that data isn't good data to begin with. And to make that data good data, you need to have a constructible model. And to have a constructible model, you really need to have the input of downstream um, users into that upstream design and planning and have everything that's happening. And so there's so many project delivery models where that, that's just impossible to do. I mean, how many times is a project about to bid and the contractor inherits it and they've got to look at it and they go, wow, I'm reading these paragraphs, I'm looking at the schematic and I know I can't build this, right? I mean, there's software programs out there now where the the elements that are given to the designers um, are not are not rated to industry installation standards. And so, what I mean by that is that they might be placing in a duct elbow. Uh, this is actually the example that we found was with the duct elbow. Uh, the engineer just using the the BIM platform puts in a duct elbow, and that duct elbow isn't SMACNA rated for installation. The radius isn't correct. Um, the openings aren't exactly right. And so when that actually gets to the contractor, the contractor's got to replace that with the actual radius and the actual inlets and outlets and everything. So that is constructible. And maybe it's only an inch off. But when you put in the correct duct elbow and you move that an inch this way, and then the rest of this duct main has to go an inch this way. Oh, and since I moved the duct main an inch this way, I'm now in a clearance of a panel, and that panel's got to go inch that way, and now all of a sudden hitting the fire sprinkler main. So you can see this ricochet, and that's off something that people don't even realize is could be even be an issue. You think you could just trust that, um, but like I, I go into all of that because if you don't have that all figured out, then the data that you've got from your model to inform downstream isn't going to be good data anyways. So you've got to get to a point where you've got good data, and then once you get to good data, constructible data. And all of that, now you're just talking about pulling that data out and pushing it for a bill of material or estimating whatever it might be. That, I don't know, I think that part is actually easier than the first half of it, which is how do you create that structure, that system to where you can have shop informed design, field informed design, um, and they're designing with the means that, that produce meaningful, good data. Yeah, that sounds like it'd say, it would save an incredible amount of time as well, just purely on. Oh yeah. Forget about just in the design phase, just any type of rework that would end up having to be done. I mean, that that's an obvious one too, but the design phase in itself, it that's, probably would be a lot faster. Yeah. And some of that design phase, that rework, 
that burn isn't necessarily felt by the individuals who created it. So you don't necessarily have that incentive to fix it. You know, on a typical project, if it's designed to build, the engineer created an unconstructable project, you know, the contractor's kind of just assuming that there's going to be a VDC effort and I'm going to just make it constructible. We've just accepted this as like a norm of just, you know, I'm going to get something and I'm going to have to value engineer it. How do you ensure that uh, the data from, from one step in the workflow um, can be can be used in in the next step? Like you need to interpret that data, but it, it can be different depending on where it's coming from. Yeah, I, I mean that that was one of the biggest reasons back when we were at KLH of just getting as much input as we could from the downstream consumers. I think one, you have to understand who's the consumer of your deliverable, regardless of where you're at in the value stream because it may not be the person that holds your contract, right? If you're an engineer, a lot of engineers are hired out by an architect, right? It's very common for an engineer to think of that architect as their client, but the consumer of their deliverable isn't the architect. Consumer of the deliverable is the, is the contractor that's got to build something from the deliverable. Um, so that's, that's, a mind, that's like the first mind shift change that design professionals have to <laughs> kind of get their arms around. And if they get to that point, then they've got to establish enough relationships with contractors to understand how can I change my deliverables so I can give you good data? So it's got to be informed by your downstream users. And there's just not a lot of really good ways of doing that in the open, in the open market, unless you've got um, design professionals that are just adamant about it and they're just going to make it happen. Cause it won't naturally happen through the course of a project. A lot of times. Are you making use of certain uh, data standards that you define yeah. say one common data definition and yeah, uh, that so speak the same language. <laughs> speak the same language, exactly right. Yeah, the uh, you know that was one of the things that influenced uh, Lev Kahn and Alex in the initial was creating a data specification that the entire project would work on. And within Domain, we've got that as well, where um, you know we know what data is important to those that are downstream, and because of that, we've changed you know some of the uh, the design. Um, families and things like that that we use during during design to make sure that hey there's a parameter here that says this because i know that this needs to be here because there's someone in the shop three or four handshakes away from me that's going to need to know that piece of information so yeah you're exactly right there's a we call it like a data specification a, a data standard um you know industry-wide there's not really well defined yet you know i think it's um it's we're in the early years of the wild, wild west of figuring it out. And then, um, but yeah, we, we're starting to, starting to see one come together in, in our world, at least. Cool. So, um, Marlies, before we go to the final question, any, any additional questions from you? I'm very curious. And we're talking about um, the data and sharing it between different stakeholders in the workflow. Um, is, is, do stakeholders trust each other enough to share all the data or do you still feel like, okay, they, they're holding back a little bit because it's their data, it's their work, um, sharing with, with so many other stakeholders for them, it's a risk. They feel like it's risk. Yeah, hundred percent. Totally agree with you. I mean, that was part of the reason that we set up domain was that we could establish these relationships and go through a long-term growth together of building that trust. The first, you know, the first thing that you had to go through was a trust curve. Even within the early, very first project years ago of, of domain project team members, um, 
you know, we would provide them the deliverable they asked for. And then alongside of it, we would give them a data spec or we'd push information over. And they were, they were very wary of using that data. Uh, and then once we got over that trust curve, we said, okay, well, uh, here's where the data's got holes in it. Here's where the data, I can't trust it. Uh, and then they would take both, both deliverables, the traditional one and the data one. And then over iteration and over years, they're able to maneuver, say, okay, I don't need this old traditional deliverable anymore. I can use this data, data one. Um, but there's hesitation on both sides of that. There's hesitation on the design professional to give out that data. Um, and there's hesitation on anybody like to trust that data. So you're exactly right. And, you know, the way that we got around that is that we just made a commitment to one another that we're going to just go through those early growing pains and, um, and grow together. You know, but like how you do that on a new project every time um, over and over again, without an industry wide accepted means of doing so, yeah, that's still a challenge for the industry as a whole. But once they see the benefits, uh, they probably are open to share the data. 100%. Yeah, I mean, there's um, some examples now where we've got, you know, I, I said we've got this shared IT. So we've got a, a cloud drive that connects um, our systems with uh, our, our systems of our uh, all the different domain members. And um, so what we do now is we upload the shop standards. Uh, Tweak Garrett, for example, has their shop standards. They have that uploaded to that shared drive. And then the engineers at KLH are designing with those shop standards into their designs. And that those standards are to come with specific data. So in that instance, we're actually giving, the shop is giving the data to the engineer to use in their design. And by putting that into the model, the shop is just seeing their own data back at them uh, because they crafted the design spec very explicitly for the engineer to use. And so in that case, the engineer is not having to guess on what data they want. Um, and so that gap to trust is, is very small. And then, you know, because they do that, it's linked to cost databases and things like that. You get all the benefits of, you know, removing manual takeoffs and quicker estimates and being able to iterate and go straight to spooling and all that kind of good stuff. So yeah, that hesitation or risk is a real, is, was a real challenge to, to get through. So you say save time, make less errors, more accurate. Yeah. Those are the benefits. Yeah. yeah. So I like that. So it, it, I had like an aha moment that um, in terms of like you know, the business model for domain in that um, you, you're taking a microcosm of what um, of the macrocosm that building smart is trying to accomplish. You know, building smart is trying to 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 push forward the, that standardization across the, the globe. Right. And as we all know, that's going to take time and domains like this is super smart like why don't we create a microcosm we can get this accomplished very quickly um and be able to 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 leverage that for the for the projects and and the customers so i love it that's super smart yeah and if we can create the structure to where we're doing with you know we're starting with tweak care and klh but if Domain can create the structure that takes the input of any contractor or allows any design professional in the future. You know, this isn't the next two years or anything like that. Uh, and then all of a sudden you've got a really unique system. So we're trying to figure it out with, with our team, you know, um, because I think that focus help, helps us at cool. least. All right. So last question. We asked this of all of our guests. Um, what is your personal motto? Or if you don't have a personal motto, and that's okay. Not everybody does. Um, uh, you know, what's an interesting motto that you've heard? 
Um, yeah, when you when you ask this, the one that just kind of immediately came to mind, and I don't really think of it as a, a personal motto or anything, but it just it came to mind was um, the phrase "What are you waiting for?" And what that that why that's meaningful to me is that uh, five or six years ago or, or so, uh, a mentor of mine, uh, Joe Kors, he's uh, he was a principal at, at KLH. He was the K and KLH, but he pulled me aside into his office, and um, this was at a time where I was. I was managing projects. I was working crazy hours and um, I was helping out all sorts of different things. And he, he pulled me in his office and he asked me, what are you waiting for? And uh, in the moment, I didn't really understand it. I was pretty frustrated actually. I'm sure in the moment I kind of just gave him like a blank expression and smile and nodded to get out of the office as fast as possible. But um, yeah, he said, you know, what are you waiting for? What are you doing? And, you know, because my mind was like, he has no idea how hard I'm working. Like, he has no idea that I worked all weekend or that I'm doing this. And I'm on this initiative. And I'm on that committee to help this, whatever. And uh, so I grappled with that that phrase for a while. And I was I was pretty upset with him for probably a good two months. And uh, he knows he knows all this now. Well, but if he, he didn't, uh, he knows now. And so eventually I, I came to <laughs> – yeah, right. And eventually I came to the point. It was like he, he wasn't, you know, questioning my work ethic. He wasn't questioning, like, that I was doing anything. He was – um you know, wondering why I was just participating and why I wasn't leading or driving. I was letting the, the, the stream take me where it may. And um, he asked me that question of what am I waiting for? And, um, you know, that appreciation of doing things on your own terms and not leaving it to chance. And whether you, you fail or succeed, at least you, you have the pride that you did it on your own terms. And so uh, that when you asked me that, you know, that's the phrase that kind of comes up to my mind, both in my professional, personal life anymore. I'm just, you know, what are you waiting for? Uh, to that office to where he asked me that and I got upset and didn't understand what he was talking about, and, but eventually figured it out. I love it. Oftentimes wisdom frust- frustrates you, right? And then you realize it's wisdom. Yeah, certainly <laughs> did then. <laughs> well, Alex, thank you so much. Uh, this was a this was a great conversation. Marlies, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you to everybody who has tuned in to to listen to this conversation with the Connected Construction Show. Uh, until next time, stay connected. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Connected Construction Show. For more information, visit us at connectedconstructionshow.com. dot